And as you're having a seat right now and the other campuses and venues, let's bow for a word of prayer. God, but we live in a world today, as we're gonna talk about today, that is consumed with fear. We're a fear-driven society and a fear-driven world. And Lord, as we just sang about, and I hope we believe it, there's something about faith in you. There's something, as we're gonna to see today, about your love that has the power to drive out fear. And Lord, some of us don't believe that today. We've been uh, believing in you for years. We would even say we know you love us, but for some reason, it's not penetrated to the point that it's adequately dealt with our fear. And so, Lord, we're still battling within. So, Lord, as we focused on this idea of fear today, and as we look to drown it with your love and goodness, would you give us wisdom? May we honor what you say in your word rightly, and may we all go out of here today just a bit changed, ready for the week ahead. And I pray these things in Jesus' name, and we all say together, amen. So as tomorrow is Memorial Day, the day that we set aside to honor and remember those who have given their lives in military service to our country, and as today, as I prayed about, is the second installment of our Battle Within series, this week focusing on fear, I thought it would be a good idea to begin our time by hearing from one of our own who has fought in battle and also battled fear. I'm gonna warn you, this is a powerful story, a very moving story. So let's listen to our brother, Phil. When I was 20, I was in the middle of the Vietnam War. The war was brutal uh, in many ways, living in a jungle, uh, fighting enemy soldiers. I was caught in the middle of being a new guy. I'm in a country that I don't know. You're wet all day from sweat. Guys who were angry and, and didn't really want to bother with new guys. And, and the fear of the unknown. I, I was afraid of everything. When my tour of duty ended, uh, I came back to the States. It wasn't long after that that I started to know, notice something was wrong with me and I, and I didn't know what. After 38 years, I was so overwhelmed with anxiety. It was getting to the point where I couldn't cope anymore phys physically. I was getting worse. And, and so what happened was uh, they, they, they put me into a, a place called the Vet Center, a place that deals with uh, combat soldiers, uh, their stress and, and PTSD. One of the uh, therapists there, her name was Janet, I had saw her for like four years. She said to me, you know, I would really like you to come to my church with me. The first time I, I stepped onto Cactus Campus, I was uh, about 62 years old. After I went a, a few Sundays for services there, I decided to join one of the men's groups. And they taught me the Bible, and they taught me about Jesus' relationship with me. And they showed tr true friendship. I found a group of people who are, who are living their lives the way I wanted. I choose with humility from my heart to glorify Jesus Christ. Now I'm 73 years old and I was diagnosed with stage four liver cancer and, and they told me that I'm terminal. I reflect on uh, when I pass, I will be able to live in, 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 in Jesus' kingdom with the Father for eternity. And I'm not afraid. 
A matter of fact, I'm kind of looking forward to going to God's kingdom. Before I knew Jesus, I was all alone in the world and I was full of fear. But now with my experience with Jesus Christ, with my one-on-one -on -one relationship, I have him. And so I feel safe now. I'm not afraid anymore. So let's not do a drive-by with what we just saw and heard. I want to spend a few minutes unpacking Phil's experience because I believe, and I think you'll agree, that there's something in it for all of us. Obviously, Phil experienced fear when he was in battle in Vietnam. Just about everybody did. How could you not? And the way that Phil dealt with his fear during Vietnam was with what we call courage. Courage. In other words, courage is defined as moving forward despite the fear, and that's what Phil did. He plowed through the fear by moving forward in the face of it, and it got him through the battles. It even earned him a bronze star medal. And this is obviously how many, many people today deal with the fear in their own lives. They utilize courage, rightly so, to plow through it whether it's fear in their job or fear in their emotions or fear in an athletic competition or even fear in a particular relationship, so many scenarios we use courage to move forward in spite of the fear. And it's a great and workable way to deal with fear, especially in the moment, especially in battle. But as Phil attested to, Courage has its limitations, right? In other words, when he came back from the war, fear still gripped him, only this time it was a latent fear, the residue of fear from the war, born of trauma, now taking on a life of its own in PTSD. And though courage was still needed, courage alone could not adequately deal with this now deeper level of fear and anxiety that he was experiencing. And so Phil sought help in the form of treatment and counseling, which again is a good thing to do. Many times when you talk through fears and try to get to the bottom of what's going on with them, counseling and even some good friends can be very helpful. But as Phil found, even this would not be enough. He needed more. And what I don't want you to miss is that what Phil needed most, what became the final and most potent tool in dealing with his fear was nothing short of love. Uh, it was the overwhelming love of God in Christ Jesus embraced by faith and relationality as well as the ever powerful love of others. Did you catch it? what Phil called true friendship of a small group of people around him, like-minded people, these became the seedbed for turning fear into security and anxiety into hope. To the point that now, even with his impending passing, you heard him say it, not even eventual death is gripping him with fear. As the great hymn writer would say, parroting the scriptures, where, O death, is now thy sting? Where, O grave, is thy victory? But truly, what Phil teaches us is that though courage can plow through fear in the moment and it has its place, only love, don't miss this, 
Only the love of God found in Jesus, we'll talk about what that means in a minute, and only the love of a select few around you who also know God in Jesus can adequately and ultimately deal with our deepest fears. And so once again, let's give thanks to Phil for sharing his story with us. Would you do that? Amen. Now, at this point, for those of you tracking with me, and hopefully all of you are, we need to be asking the question, but how precisely does this work? You ever thought about that? I mean, there's lots of people that'll tell you today that love can adequately deal with or eradicate fear. It's a common mindset, a common phrase, because they stole it from the Bible. Uh, but exactly how does love work in such a way that it calms our fears and even reduces them to mere background noise or no noise at all? It's a nice thing to say that love can conquer fears, but does it have teeth? Does it have grit that can actually work in daily life? And if so, how? Now, there's a passage tucked away in the New Testament that though rather short, is chock full of meaning and richness in light of this topic today. And it's a passage worth parking in front of this Memorial Day weekend as it reveals to us how the love of Jesus experienced in him and through others can blow through our fears and take us beyond mere courage in successfully dealing with them. The passage is 1 John 4, verse 18. Some of you have heard it before, but we're gonna spend some concentrated time in it today and look at it at a deeper level than many of you probably have. So let's first read it, then we're gonna make sense of it. 1 John 4, verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Now, before we do a deep dive into this passage today, I've always taught you guys this, one of the first things we need to do is understand the context of this passage, right? So you never wanna read a Bible passage just out of the blue and say, here's what I think it means. You need to understand it in the context of where it was written. And when you look at the verses before this passage and then look at the verses after this passage, you're gonna like this. The context is all about the love of God found in relationship with Jesus and then the love of others around you who are being Jesus to you. And so the verses before this talk about the sacrificial love of Jesus, the fact that he died on a cross to bring us home to God and that that is the essence of love. And then the passages after this challenge us, now that we've understood this love or experienced this love of Jesus, now let's be this way to each other in our relationships. So the entire context is about love in two clear expressions, God's love for us and Jesus, and then our love for each other. Now, what John then does here in verse 18, and this is fascinating, is that right in the middle of this discussion on divine and human love, he injects the real concept of fear, something we can all relate to, and in mentioning fear four times, he combats it by mentioning love three times. I don't know if you caught that or not, 
but like a scratch CD, he mentions fear, 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 fear. And then he says, love, love, love. And John's a poet, so he'd be very offended if we missed the poetry and the cadence going on here, what I call a, a contrast in symmetry. See if you can feel it as I read it for you again. This is what John wants us to feel. He says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. You see, fear has to do with punishment. Remember, fears has not been perfected in love. And now you're starting to, to feel what John is trying to say to you and me. Let's go a little bit deeper in this. I want you to notice in the first half of this verse that John tells us that obviously love and fear are incompatible. Like oil and water, they can't exist in the same space. They repel each other and then he gives that, that, that very famous but very poignant phrase where he says that perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love casts out fear. I want you to focus on this two-word phrase here, perfect love, because it's not used very often in the Bible. Now, that word love is, that word love is a very common word in the Bible and in the Greek. It's the Greek word agape. It's used about 120 times in the New Testament, which is a lot. And as most of us know, the word agape means unconditional love. Out of the four Greek words for love, it's the highest word, the strongest word. It's the word used of God's love for us. And it literally means a love with no ifs, ands, or buts about it. He loves you, period. He loves you as you are. He cares for you. And nothing, as the Bible says, can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So John is mentioning that love. But then notice, and this is really important, that John does something with mentioning this love. He modifies it with a word that's not used very often in the scriptures. It's the Greek word teleos that's translated perfect here. It's only used 19 times in all of the scriptures. And this word teleos means complete, mature, or in this case, perfect. It carries with it the idea to bring something to its intended completion or fullness. Teleos means end. It means to reach the end, that you've arrived somewhere. And with teleos modifying agape here, translated perfect love, what you need to see is that it's a double whammy. <laughs> In this context here, it's talking about how as we increasingly experience this perfect love of Jesus in our lives, this love that could know no deeper level because it's reached its completion and end, Jesus died for us, he loves you, and it's an absolutely perfect love that that love can cast out our fear. In fact, John doesn't even say it can cast out our fear. He says it does cast out our fear, and that's gonna be important for us. He says perfect love does or does cast out fear. And that phrase cast out is an important phrase. I decided to look up that one this week because I thought, gosh, it sounds like it's saying, and we gotta wrestle with this, that if we're in Jesus, that we're not, not fearing. Like, does that really mean what it means? Like, maybe the word cast out doesn't mean cast out. Maybe it means, like, it's pushed off to the side a little bit. Nah, it doesn't mean that. I looked it up. <laughs> I looked up every context of the Greek word balo, which is cast out here. And the most famous one is Jesus in Matthew 6.30, where, remember where he says that, you know, you are so valuable. That, and he says, you know, look at the grass. It, 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 the grass is here today, and we pick it up, and we throw it in the fire, and it's burned away. Remember that thing? 
Okay, you guys go back to Sunday school. Anyways, what Jesus said was, is that Jesus, we picked up the grass, it's thrown into the furnace, and it's here no more, but you're more valuable than grass. Well, when he says that grass is thrown into the furnace, that's that phrase cast away here in 1 John. So just like you can picture grass is thrown into a fire and it burns up, that's what John is saying that perfect love can do with our fears. And some of you say, well, I mean, how could a perfect love actually you know, eliminate fear? Well, when you understand what the Bible says about Jesus' love for us, it starts to make sense. I want you to look up here on the monitor. There are three things knit together that the Bible connotes or says about Jesus' agape love for us, his perfect love. First, as I already hinted to, his love breeds acceptance, and then his love breeds security. And then love like this breeds trust. And again, this is exactly the way it's supposed to work. One of the first things the Bible says is that agape love, especially perfect agape love that's found in Christ, breeds acceptance. I don't know why it's so hard for us to get this, but once you come home to Jesus, he accepts you. He takes you as you are, warts and pimples and all. Think about it this way. He's God, so he knows every sin you've ever done, even the ones you haven't told anybody about. He knows everything you're thinking and doing right now that's sinful. He even knows every sin you're gonna do between now and when you die. That should blow you away. He knows every one of them, and he still accepts you and embraces you in his love. And because of that then, love of that nature breeds security. How could it not? You're safe in the arms of Jesus. You're, you're safe in his presence. He accepts you. And, and so now you're secure. His love is able to get you through all the ups and downs of life all the way to heaven. And then once you understand this, that you're accepted and secure, then of course you're gonna wanna trust a guy like this. And so love breeds trust. Love is the kind of thing that's designed that when you're loved like that, you're willing to trust the person that loves you like that. If ever there was a trifecta, this is it. And when added all together, this is the kind of love John is telling us that can eradicate fear. You're accepted, secure, you can trust. Fear is gonna run out the back door. And maybe now you can see why Phil said in his video, I love the way he said this toward the end of it. He said, after all that he's been through with the war and PTSD and now coming home to Jesus and experiencing this true friendship with others, did you hear him say it? He says, I am safe now. I love that. I am safe now. And he means it because the fear no longer grips him. And folks, it works this way. John's not kidding. Perfect love casts out fear. And Jesus' love for you and for me is the most perfect, complete love we could ever experience. And when we do, it adequately <laughs> deals with our fears. Now, I know what some of you are thinking at this moment because you think like me. You're thinking, but Jamie... I believe in Jesus and I know that he loves me, but I still have lots of fear. And so his love has not seemed to have cast out my fear, so what's up with that? That's what some of you, if you're really honest today, would say to me. 
And if you would dare say that to me, I want to encourage you right now. Thank you for your honesty and you're not alone. I think the vast majority of Christ followers today would own what you just thought or if you've ever thought this. Because Christians, I love you guys, we tend to be some of the most fear-based people on planet Earth. You ever notice that? Like we watch TV, we're full of fear. We read the newspaper, we're full of fear. We go out to Walmart, we're full of fear. And we're driving on the road, we're full of fear. I mean, people don't see us and say, my, those are a peaceful group of people. They don't see that. They look at us and they see our faith. But they go, man, these people are anxious. They're full of fear. And all of a sudden, John comes along, he says, perfect love casts out, say the word with me, fear. Hmm, I don't see the connection there, John. Because many of us believe in Jesus and, and, and we've placed our faith in him and we know that he loves us and we'll, we're still mired in fear. And so how does that work? What's up with that? And to put our finger directly on the problem, we need to focus on the second half of this verse. I warned you, this is a very rich passage, even though it's short, because it's almost like John anticipated this query of ours when we say, what's up with that? And look at what he goes on to say in the second half of this verse. He says, for fear has to do with punishment. Here it is. And whoever fears, pause right there. He just said, perfect love casts out fear. But he's almost anticipating that some of us will say, well, I believe in Jesus. I know he loves me, but I still have fear. So he says, and whoever still fears has not been perfected in love, has not been perfected in love. Now, this is where you and I must tune in very closely because something is happening here in John's use of language and logic that helps us understand what's going on in our own souls and experience. And you gotta put on your thinking caps here because he's doing something here with words and again with logic that, that, that are, is very rich and, and, and you don't want to miss this. So here, I'm gonna try to explain it to you. When he says that for somebody who still fears they've not been perfected in love, that phrase, perfected in love, uses the identical words that he used in the first half of the passage where he says that Jesus loves us with a perfect love. So perfect love casts out fear, but then he says, and whoever still fears has not been perfected in love. So I looked it up. Perfected, teleos, love, agape, used identically to the first part of the verse. However, John is using these identical words in a very different way in the second half here than he did in the first half. You might remember the first half I pointed out that teleos, perfect, modifies love, agape, describing God's love for us in Jesus. I, I, I made that pretty clear. But in the second half here, don't miss this, he's talking about our experience of God's love in Jesus and whether that experience has come to completion or fullness or translated here, perfection. And so don't miss this. The first use of the idea of perfection modifies Jesus' love for us, but this second use here, using the same words, the idea of perfection modifies our experience of that love. And so if this is all doing a, too fast of a drive-by by you, let me just cut to the quick. What it's literally saying is this. 
that if fear still grips you, then the perfect love of Jesus has not become perfect in you. That's what he's saying here. That if fear is still part of your experience as a follower of Jesus, and again, there's so many Christians walking around like that, then what John is putting his finger on is that the perfect love of Jesus has not then become perfect yet in you, and it needs to. In other words, you've not come to completion or maturity yet in your experience of Jesus and his love. Essentially what he's saying is that the reason that some of us who believe in Jesus and go to church and attend small group and serve and give and do our best to obey him, the reason that some of us say that we believe and know that Jesus loves us but still have fear is that we really haven't gotten amidst all of our activity and busyness how much he really loves us. In short, and I don't mean to make you squirm, you have yet to mature and grow up in the love that God has for you. And the reason we know this is because John, the most brutal thing he's saying to us here is that fear is the barometer. See, some of us, they think that truth is the barometer. If I know more truth and I, and I understand a lot of the Bible and I read a bunch of passages, then that makes me mature. Well, that might help lead to maturity, but truth isn't the barometer that you really know him. Your life, your heart, and how settled you are in Jesus versus how fearful you are of the world and everything around you, that's the acid test. Some of you think, no, it's service. See, if I serve a lot and I give a lot of money and I just do a lot of nice things and if I obey him, that's a barometer. No, those are all good things to do. That's not the barometer. The barometer is how much his love has driven out the nasty things in your heart and literally changed you. See, it's easy to fake it on the outside. It is. It's easy to do all the activities that God, yeah, I can clap if you want, get it out. <laughs> It's easy to do all the activities on the outside. And again, they're good activities. Don't send me emails, Jamie, telling me not to serve and give. I'm not telling you that. These are good things that we do. It's just that we dupe ourselves if we think that through more service and more giving and more obedience and more Bible reading and, and all good things to do. But you can do all of those things and still have fear. And when you do that and experience that, you should be honest with yourselves and say, why is that occurring? And God says, because in the midst of all of your activity, you're engaging in an adventure in missing the point. He says, in the midst of all your activity, you're still blocking your heart from the love that I have for you. And it's only hurting your own soul. This analogy always works. <laughs> Many of you are in marriages and in good marriages and, or you're in good relationships. You, you love people close to you. Almost all of us have that. Can you imagine saying to your, your marriage partner or to somebody you're close with, you know, well, I believe in the truth of who you are and I serve you and I obey you and I do all the things you want me to do and da da da, da and I take out the trash and I clean the car and da da da, da and, and isn't that enough? What would your partner say? No, it, it ain't enough. <laughs> Some of you men still don't get it. It's not enough. <laughs> because you see, intimacy is not bred that way. If there's anything we've learned from marriage, you can do all the right things outwardly and still not have a heart tuned in to the person you love. Give me a head nod that you at least understand that. And that's exactly what God is saying. 
John is saying, look, you can do all the outward things you want to. They're they're all good and fine things to do. They they actually will help you. Again, he wants us to be obedient. He wants us to be into truth. He wants, all those things are good. If you don't have them, you're going to miss them. But at the end, the subtle thing is, is that if your heart is not softened to his love and grace, if his love and grace are not that which are driving you in your life, then again, you're going to live a fear-based life and though you're probably still going to go to heaven, I don't think you can go to hell for that. You're going to have a fear-based life for the rest of your life, driving away God and everybody else that's trying to draw close to you. I'll talk more about this in a minute, but I, I experienced a revolution of God's love and grace about 15 years into my walk with Jesus when I was back in Detroit in the mid-1990s. And uh, it was revolutionary for me. It changed the way I preach. A few years ago, one of my elders from my last church was here visiting with me, and I was talking about God's love and grace in Jesus. And he said, what some of you say, man, like every time I visit, you're talking about that. You're like a one-string banjo, he said. And I thought about it later, and I thought, yeah, but ain't it a great tune that I'm playing? (laughs) Because, yeah, it's a one-tune banjo, but guess what? It's the one tune that the Bible plays over and over again. I've done intricate study on this to make sure I'm not nuts. Let me show you a couple of passages. Paul the Apostle in 1 Corinthians 13, 13 says, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. Pause right there. So he's basically saying, when you get right down to it, amidst all the the, the intricacies and complexities of your life, as far as God sees, there's only three things that really matter. Your faith in Jesus, your hope in his kingdom, and then the love that God has for you and that you have for all the saints. Those are the only three things God really cares about. God's like the grand reductionist, right? He reduces everything so that we can understand it. Now, notice what Paul goes on to say, though. He says, but, pause right there. Did you know that the word but is an adversative? So but basically means that you're going to push back right now. Some of you are tempted to say faith, hope, and love. Ooh, I like faith. I love hope. Love's kind of soft and gushy. I don't know if I like that. Paul's anticipating that, so he says, but... The greatest of these is, say it with me, love. So he's saying love at the end of the day. Again, the love of God in Christ Jesus and then the love we're to have for each other. That's what rules supreme. Paul overdosed on this. He would say it this way in Galatians 5 verse 6. He says the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And again, Christians are wily. I actually have heard people try to defend what I'm about to say, and it doesn't work. They'll say, yeah, but I love through focusing on truth, and I love through service, and I love through you know, obeying God, and I love through you know, reading the Bible. Again, you're redefining terms there. Yes, truth matters. Yes, reading the Bible matters. Yes, prayer matters. All those things matter. And those things, now watch this, can lead to love, but they themselves de facto are not love. Again, how do we know this? Because your marriage or your key relationships here teach you that. If you try to say that because I serve you, I love you, or because I do this, I love you, there's an aspect of intimacy missing until your heart is knit with another. And it's the same with God. It's the same with Jesus. And so what this means for some of us here today, and what a great Memorial Day lesson for us, is that what God is calling you to do, if you are still gripped by fear, now now don't miss this, because this is not as hard as it sounds, it's just going to take some time. He's calling you to refocus your pursuit, 
to refocus your pursuit. You're on the right road. Man, you know Jesus and you're walking with him and all of that. It's all good. But, but you, you go down all these side trails. Again, good side trails. But they're side trails that take you off the main path. Because the main path, the focus of your pursuit is the never-ending amazing grace and love that saved your pathetic soul. That's, what God, that's where God wants you. And to never tire of allowing that love to be that which gets you out of bed and focuses you throughout the day. Never tired of salivating, thirsting after that love and desiring an intimacy with God that you truly can develop and that can deal a death blow to your fears. One of the reasons that I feel so strongly about this and that I, I, uh, and that I preach often about it, as I said earlier, is because for the first 15 years of my Christianity, I got saved into an environment that though very good and wonderful, bred a lot of legalism in my life. Some of you are familiar with that term. Legalism is basically a, a Christian view that says that though God saved you by grace, now you got to work like crazy, you know, to be acceptable to him, you know, in your Christian life. You got to do this and do that and cut off this and grow this and all these other things that they say you need to do. And it becomes a very performance-based approach to Christianity. And for the first 15 years of my Christian experience, I mean, I was ripe for that that worldview because I grew up in a family where, where I wanted to please dad and never could and now I'm a young man and I want to please others and I, and I found I couldn't and, and so man I was like a perfect candidate for legalism. I was like Paul the Apostle back then and, and the law meant everything to me and I took the law and I baptized it and put it in the New Testament and man I was like on my way and yet as some of you found uh, legalism might make you somewhat of a, a more rigid if not better person the problem is, is it alienates everybody around you, even God. Because he says, I've already accepted you. What are you trying to prove? And he says, it's my love, it's my kindness that should lead you to repentance, not an obligation, not duty. That won't breed intimacy. Only my love and grace and kindness will. So around 1990, again, about 10 years into my, my faith, I, I got to a church in Detroit, and we were all young and stupid. I had no idea how to run church but we sure did know how to love Jesus. And there began a grace awakening, a reformation of love in our experience of Jesus. And, and we used to talk about it all the time and pursue him all the time. And it was very formative years for me. And about halfway through my time in Detroit, and this won't, you won't have any problem seeing this, I, I was so frustrated. Again, I was frustrated because here I'm focusing on the right things, but man, it wasn't happening quick. I mean, I had, you know, decades of sin behind me and, and I wasn't growing as fast as I wanted to and I was still angry and, and all these things and here I am focusing on this, but this is rearing its ugly head. It was the battle within just raging in my soul. And at one point I decided to, to get close to this older, settled, peaceful pastor in my church. He was a wonderful leader in all of Detroit and he landed at our church. He was pastoring the pastors. His name was Al and I thought, I need to get close to Al because he's got something that I want. And you can't make this stuff up. I remember the first time Al and I went out to lunch and, and I decided just to unload on him. I've always been real. And so I unloaded on Al all my anxieties and my fears and yet I'm pursuing the love of God and I've been saved for 15 years now and I'm not making as much headway as I want and da da da, da And I'm just all this anxious mess unloading on Al. And I kid you not, he's sitting across the table with this dumb smile on his face, chewing his food. And he's relaxed as relaxed could be, and he's just looking at me, smiling. 
And I finally said, what are you smiling at? I'm a mess over here. I need some help. Tell me something that could help. And he still just sat there smiling at me. And eventually I said, Al, can you relate to this at all? I'll never forget what he said next. He looked at me amid bites of food and he said, well, I sure felt that way when I was your age. I said, ooh, now we're getting somewhere. You did? He said, yeah, you know, when I was in my mid-20s and the early 30s, I, I felt as anxious and uptight as you were and I was focusing on Jesus and, you know, I felt that way. I said, good, good. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. What'd you do? <laughs> I kid you not. He looked at me and said, I got old. <laughs> and I said, I said, wait a second, I'm missing something here. I said, you got old. I mean, you are old, I get that. What do you mean you got old? And then he said, Jamie, you're asking God to completely penetrate your, your hardened soul and erase all these years of sin and you want him to do it now. He says, it's a process, it takes time. You're on the right road, you're doing the right things, but man, it's gonna take time. And all I know is that when I was your age, I was that way, I've stayed in the ring with Jesus and now look at me. And I thought, so I gotta get old in order to experience this. And I don't know if Al was prophetic or not, but I'm 58 and I think he was right. See, here, here's the problem is that you can get old and still be a curmudgeon, right? You can get old and still be very distant from Jesus and still be gripped by fear. But the alternative is also true, that as you age, as you grow older, you can also become more in tuned with the amazing love of God for you and Jesus and allow that love to penetrate your heart and your mind, to immerse yourself in it day in and day out in such a way that it actually starts to make a difference. He starts to make a difference. And all I know is that for 25 years, I've been focusing on that. And though I haven't arrived, <laughs> I'm nowhere there. There's too many days I'm still backsliding and gripped by fear. I would also tell you this, and my wife would attest to this, I'm a lot better than I was. I'm a lot further down that road than I, than, I, than I was. And I'm hoping that someday when I'm a bit older, some young pastor mired in the battle is gonna take me out to lunch and I'm gonna sit there with a stupid grin on my face, <laughs> eating my food. And as that pastor unloads on me, I can't wait to share with him what Al shared and to be settled in Jesus as I do this. I wanna make a couple more comments before we sing our closing song. I'm gonna get you out of here on time. We got just about four or five minutes. First, remember earlier that I mentioned the context of John and how important that was. In other words, before these verses, you have the love of God in Christ Jesus, and then after these verses, the love we should have for each other. Both of those are critical here. If you walk out today, Cactus, Northridge Chapel, those of you online, if you leave here today and think to yourself, well, I just got to double down on Jesus and experience his love more, kind of like me and Jesus on an island. That's not going to suffice. Not saying Jesus isn't enough, but watch this. It's Jesus in your personal times with him, and it's Jesus through a close group of people around you who, as I said earlier, can be Jesus to you. That was Phil's journey. In other words, we need both. You need the vertical expression of Jesus's love for you, just you and him, but also the horizontal relationships that show you what that love is like. Jim Elliott, who was probably one of the 
most powerful missionaries to the, uh, to the Aka tribe back, back in the day, back in the 50s, once wrote in his journals that it took experiencing the love of his wife Elizabeth and her unconditional love for him, for him to fully connect it with God on the divine level. And, and I remember reading that as a young man, I thought, I think that's true. I want you to ask yourself this week, who in your life accepts you? Who in your life really accepts you? That if you were to tell them something that nobody else knows, kind of nasty, they wouldn't run. Who in your life gives you security? Who in your wife, who in your life, for me it's my wife, who in your life <laughs> loves you in such a way that you feel safe with them? And who in your life do you trust? I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, Jamie, I'm not sure I have that. I get that. But maybe part of your pursuit is to start to find that, to start to take some risks. Jesus gave this example. He said, don't throw your pearls to swine. So maybe you open up the clamshell that holds your pearl just a little bit to somebody around you and see what they do with it. And if they don't accept you or give you security or somebody you want to trust, then just shut it, move on to the next person. But I've been doing that for years. And I feel blessed that I probably only have four or five people in my life that truly know me, but love me for who I am. And that even if everything fell apart tomorrow, they'd be with me. I might lose a lot, but they would love me. And that's apples of gold right there. And they are Jesus to me. And they point me to Jesus. And they help me understand Jesus. Because here's the logic. If just a few people can love me like that, and God says he loves me 18,000 times more than that, wow, I'm gonna pursue God. But it takes both. So what about you? What kind of experiences are you having with God and others? Are they experiences that foster this perfecting love in your life to the point that you can kiss fear goodbye? You have a choice. You can make today the day that you say, I'm gonna pursue the never-ending love and grace of God that's found in Jesus and that I can even experience in others. We decided to close our time today with all singing the same song. We don't usually do that, but we're actually gonna have it sung to us. So this is one of those songs where if you wanna sing along, you can, but at least here in Shea, we're gonna ask you to remain seated. So don't stand. There's always one of you. Just don't stand. <laughs> And uh, so just control yourself. God's given us a spirit of, of love and self-control. So just control yourself. And, and, and it's a very, very beautiful song. It's one of my favorite hymns. It's called Be Still My Soul. The reason I want you to sit is I want you to soak this in. It's gonna be sung for you here and I think on the other campuses and venues. And it's done to a melody that came out of Western Europe about 100 years ago. Just a beautiful melody. You'll probably recognize it. And the first verse goes like this, be still my soul, the Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to thy God to order and provide. In every change, he faithful will remain. And he will. God, I thank you for the never ending love, the agape love that has been perfected in Jesus. And Lord, though there be plenty of us here today who will own that that love has not yet been perfected in us, 
I thank you that John leaves some room for that in his teaching to us. But Lord, there's also a nudge. There's a call that if we don't want to live a fear-based life, only love, only the love found in you is going to ultimately deal with that. And so Lord, my guess is that I know many of these folks here, they're good-hearted people who, who love you and want to know you. I pray, God, that today would be a turning point for some of us, that we would pursue your love on a deeper level from this point on in our lives. Not be afraid to pray about, even open up to some around us that might be Jesus to us in the realms of acceptance and security and trust. And Lord, in all of that, draw us closer to you. Make us less fear-based and more love-based, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.